Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Big changes on the way for the Air Force and Space Force. Senior officials just unveiled a sweeping set of plans that will reshape the service's very structures. Maybe one of the most significant reorganizations since the end of the Cold War. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. Anastasia, what are they doing here? Give us the uh, give us the outlines. So many changes. First of all, and I think this is one of the major changes, they are creating a new command. The command is called Integrated Capabilities Command, and it's kind of all in, in the name. It will be this centralized place that will be doing future planning. It will be putting together requirements because usually it falls on commands to determine their requirements and they're responsible for their own future planning. But now the Air Force will have this centralized hub and the commands will be able to focus on daily operations rather than on future planning. So it sounds like they're taking a little bit of the authority away from the MAGCOMs, as they call them, in the Air Force. Definitely, definitely. And at the same time, they're also standing up an integrated capabilities office. That office will kind of prioritize investments, mostly modernization investments, and the office and the command will be working together very closely in the coming years. And the Air Combat Command then sounds like that could be a little bit less authoritative than before, concentrating on actual operations as opposed to planning and budgeting, programming and execution. Yes, correct. What led to this? Why are they doing this? So about two years ago, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, he introduced this concept of operational imperatives. That was more of a roadmap to bring in technology and realign investments. It was just about modernization in general. Those operational imperatives, they were focused on mostly systems. So, for example, they were looking to identify and then invest in specific applications for the advanced battle management system. And that's the system uh, that provides a secure communication for airmen. So last September, he wrote an open letter to airmen and guardians where he said the service is not as ready as it could be for a potential conflict. He said the service is optimized to support the post-9-11 environment, but the world has changed. So he ordered a sweeping review of the service. He wanted a review of everything, how they organize, how they train, how they equip the Air Force and Space Force. Here's acting undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. We realized that we needed more enterprise solutions deliberate integration. We needed to prioritize mission success over function. And we needed to make sure that we were doing all of that for one department with two services. That was acting undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. Sounds as if they're talking about everything but modernizing the fleet itself, because that's expensive. And every modernization platform they have, the tanker, The new fifth-generation fighter is mired in overruns years and years and years late, and they're already having to backfill the original copies to get them up to date with what the new copies are doing. So it sounds like they're doing a lot of work on everything to support flying what it is they have to fly with. Yes, that's correct. They are mostly focused on areas like personnel, readiness, power projection, a little bit of capability developments, but not really on aircrafts themselves. 
Okay, because they have some cooking. They do have a new bomber cooking, and I think it actually got airborne once, but so another 25 years it might carry bombs. Let's talk about personnel then. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot of change in store for for how they train and, and manage their people. Yes. So they decided that they're going to bring back warrant officers, but that is specific to IT and cyber fields. It's a big change for the Air Force just because they decided to phase out its warrant officer program almost 50 years ago. I think it was in 1959, and the last active duty warrant officer retired in 1980. The Air Force decided that warrant officers are kind of in-betweeners, between enlisted and commission officer levels. They just made a decision that it was inconvenient to have another rank, and they got rid of it, and they decided to streamline the ranking system. Other military branches use a warrant officer program, and they use it for different fields like aviation, logistics, engineering, um, but the Air Force doesn't. So this is a big change. These officers will provide technical expertise only in cyber operations and technology, though. Right. So this will come from existing ranks because they don't have congressional authority to greatly expand the number of people billets in the Air Force. Yes, correct. When do they say this will all be done? And, you know, once again, what do they hope will be the effect of these changes? So they said that they're finalizing the details regarding all of the decisions. And by the way, it's 24 key decisions that they announced this week. Kendall said that each decision will have a timeline for planning and execution, and that will vary from immediate to maybe over a year. But also an important thing to remember is that Kendall is a political appointee, so he might have to leave at the end um, of President Joe Biden's current term, which might affect all of these plans. Yes. Well, that's an unpredictable, a totally unpredictable situation. But otherwise, they want to get started on some of the changes right away, like the warrant officers that could happen, what, next year? Yes, possibly. Again, they introduced 24 key decisions. Some of them are a lot easier to implement than others. For example, I want to highlight one more thing. One big change is that they will Elevate Air Force Cyber, that's currently under Air Combat Command, but it will be a standalone service component. Changes like that are big. It might possibly take over a year. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on it, as I know you will. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.